What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's July 1975 in Manchester, England. A young woman's body is found buried in rubble, her face shattered beyond recognition. 18-year-old Wanda Scala's injuries shocked even the most seasoned detectives. I probably haven't seen um, in just that extent on anybody um, in my total service. Her killer, later dubbed the Beast of Manchester, sparked fear across the city. His mother was afraid of him, his father was afraid of him, most of the community was afraid of him. This is a complete sociopath who's out of control. This beast was 30-year-old Trevor Hardy. He seemed to truly relish the act of killing, but it didn't stop there. The beast would return to mutilate his victims over and over again. There is no other word for that than evil. It's depravity at the highest possible level. He murdered three teenage girls for his own gratification and was one of the UK's longest-serving prisoners for his vicious crimes. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Trevor Hardy. Between 1974 and 1976, Trevor Hardy terrorized Manchester's northern suburbs. Not only did he stalk the streets as a prolific and violent burglar, he would go on to brutally kill three teenage girls. He doesn't seem affected by the fact that he's just taken somebody else's life. He just goes about his business as usual. The community lived in fear of the volatile and unpredictable Hardy. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley explains how Hardy ended up with his strange nickname. Hardy was branded the Beast of Manchester, and, and that's because of the ferocity of his attacks. And the impact on the local community was immense. These were these young women out having fun with their friends, with their boyfriends. One day they're here, one day they're not. These women were mercilessly plucked off the streets. Ian Kirkpatrick was a young detective working for Greater Manchester Police in the early 70s. He investigated some of Hardy's ruthless killings. I feel he was an extremely dangerous human being. He couldn't even class him as an animal, a very cruel, manipulative man. He was notorious, violent. He was not one to be liked, not one to be trusted. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber gives some insight as to what was going on in the city at the time. People didn't feel safe in their own homes. This is a situation of a person who fits almost a stereotype of a sociopath. He wants everything that he wants now. He's willing to use any level of violence possible in order to get what he wants now. And he has no remorse or concern about the consequences of what he does to get what he wants. He was simply a monster. He was the most awful, terrifying man to deal with. 
Trevor Joseph Hardy was born on June 11, 1945, in the working-class suburb of Newton Heath, North Manchester. It was the beginning of a troubled childhood for Trevor. Hardy's father was quite strict. He had some quite rigid rules around morality and that kind of thing. And if you look at Hardy's behavior, he starts misbehaving quite early on. He starts rebelling against those rules, against those boundaries. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel talks about Hardy's background. It is in that background of poverty, he got a reputation. He was, uh, although he was short, he was nevertheless afraid of no one and would fight anyone. At age eight, Hardy started getting into trouble at school. His mother would receive teacher's notes regarding Trevor bullying fellow classmates. Even at home, Hardy was an unruly child. He often snuck out of the house to roam the streets. So he's bullying, he's intimidating other children, he's being violent towards others. So right from the outset, from a really early age, he is breaking the rules. So here was somebody who was pretty feral, to be honest. This was a kid who from the earliest moments was showing signs of a complete lack of connection with other human beings and with a complete lack of connection with, with the concept of social right and social wrong. Hardy's mother believed she had an explanation for her son's violence and aggression. In his early years, he suffered a life-changing blow to the head. Just sliver of bone was broken off from his skull and moved nearer to the brain itself. And she suggested, and other people have suggested over the years, that that could have had an impact on his violence and his violent temper. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton agrees that such a blow could potentially change the way someone behaves. His family certainly thought that when that a sliver of bone from his skull had pressed on his brain, it altered his behavior, it made him more aggressive. Um, certainly, damage to the brain can alter behavior, often quite radically. By his teens, Trevor Hardy was racking up an extensive criminal record. At the age of 15, he was arrested for theft and burglary and convicted for a string of more than 20 offenses. The judge who presided over his case ruled that, despite his age, he should receive a 12-month jail term, a bid to protect the public. He was the youngest person ever to be sent to prison. He was in strange ways at 15. Uh, that is a kind of unruly, uncontrollable young man he was. Uh, violent man, um, worrying really that he could get through the system and uh, operate like he did. Well, there's no question that Hardy, as a young man, terrorised his local neighbourhood by the simply the weight of burglaries that were going on, and they all knew it was him. So when he went into jail, they could open their doors again because he was just a prolific burglar, and everybody knew who it was. After being released from jail, Hardy's wrongdoings continued, and escalated from small-scale crimes to deadly ones. One of the characteristics of many serial killers is they begin by a petty crime, and it escalates. I think he was set on murder from an early age. After stints in juvenile detention centers, special schools, and then prison, Trevor Hardy returned home to North Manchester. His affinity for extreme violence was only fueled by his love for alcohol. As a regular in local bars and working at clubs, 
He was feared for his ability to drink and fight. The quantity of alcohol that Hardy drank is only consistent with alcoholism. Boy, oh boy, did Trevor Hardy have an appetite for alcohol. And at one point, his younger brother, Colin, tried to suggest that it was only when he drank too much that his brain expanded to hit the sliver in his skull, which made him aggressive. He was not a large person, and yet he would get in a fight with somebody who was manifestly stronger and larger than him. And of, of course, his capacity to win those fights arose from one simple fact. He was a beast. Hardy's behavior had been escalating for quite some time. He was seen as a bit of a tough character. And often when we see men in, in these, these circumstances, these situations, it's what we call honor contest violence. So any kind of slight, any kind of insult will result in a, in a violent confrontation. In 1972, an irate 26-year-old Trevor Hardy got into an argument with his friend Stanley O'Brien over who would buy the next round of drinks. Onlookers were astonished to see what he did next. And he'd actually ended up attacking a friend of his with a pickaxe. So here's somebody who is using violence as a way to get control, as a way to get even, as a way to maintain his honor and a sense of respect from other people. Hardy hammered O'Brien over the head repeatedly. Well, not, not exactly one-sided, but pretty nearly. O'Brien never worked again. If there was anything that could be said to have started Hardy's descent into a serial killer, it was probably that. Support for What Makes a Killer is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped's performance package is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle, and we have an exclusive offer for listeners of What Makes a Killer. Get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code KILLER20 at manscaped.com. If my math is correct, that's about 8 million balls. One of our producers has been using Manscaped, and he's become a huge fan. He says that his self-confidence has just skyrocketed, knowing that he's going out feeling so fresh, so clean, and groomed. The Performance Package 4.0 has arrived, and it is a game-changer. Inside this package, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 Trimmer, Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a travel bag to hold your goodies. Goodies for your goodies if you will. The Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer is the future of grooming and features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents and has a bright light so you get a more precise shave, and it's waterproof so you can say goodbye to the mess on the bathroom floor. Also included is the Weed Whacker nose and ear hair trimmer, which reduces nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate holes. The Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Ball Toner will change the way you approach your hygiene game. Use the promo code KILLER20, K-I-L-L-E-R-2-0 at manscaped.com for 20% off with free shipping. One more time, KILLER20 at manscaped.com. On February 7th, 1972, Trevor Hardy was convicted and sent to prison for five years for the savage pickaxe attack. 
but instead of mending his ways, he only doubled down on his behavior. Ian Kirkpatrick, a former detective in Manchester at the time, remembers what happened after Hardy was put behind bars. He said he sat in this prison cell and all he wanted to do, kill the man who had received the conviction for. Unfortunately, and to his annoyance, the victim of his attack with a pickaxe had died before he was released. Soon the Beast of Manchester would be released on bail and out on the streets. On November 18th, 1974, an angry and vengeful 29-year-old Trevor Hardy was released on parole from his five-year jail sentence. Shortly after, Hardy attacked his so-called friend Stanley O'Brien again with a pickaxe. Hardy wanted revenge and planned to pick up where he left off. O'Brien, he thought, had stiffed him one way or another and he should have finished the job. You can almost see Hardy thinking to himself, I should have killed him, I should have killed him. While in jail, he'd also become increasingly obsessed with a girl he and O'Brien knew, 14-year-old Beverly Driver. Hardy had been hoping that when he was released, he could take their relationship further. While he's in jail, she makes the mistake, or perhaps she does the right thing, and writes to him saying, I don't want anything more to do with you. I don't want to be with anyone like you. Now he's fixated on taking his revenge on her as well as Stanley O'Brien. On the train home to Manchester from prison on the Isle of Wight, Hardy was muttering two names repeatedly to himself, O'Brien and Beverly. He formulates a plan to kill her so intense that all he can think about on the train home from prison is killing her. Back in Manchester... Hardy discovered he would not be able to confront O'Brien as he'd planned. He discovers that O'Brien has died of his injuries. I would have thought that would have brought a smile to Hardy's face, a positive glow. What about Beverly? Well, he goes round to her house and throws an axe through the window. With Beverly not at home, Hardy then prowled the streets, looking for his living target. He then went and decided to trace and kill this girl. He says he went out on New Year's Eve. He took a large knife. Whilst walking, he saw a young girl. Now, she's getting out of the the car, and she's in good spirits. She's chatting to the driver, and she's making her way towards her, her destination. Half drunk and armed with his knife, Hardy grabbed Beverly. Or was it Beverly? And at that point, Hardy cuts her throat effectively and then proceeds to uh, attack her, and he killed her. She never arrived at the party, and her parents reported her missing. Agony for them. Disappears into thin air, walking through Manchester. Disturbingly, this girl was not his intended target, Beverly Driver. Hardy's first killing was, in fact, a local girl named Janet Leslie Stewart known to her friends as Leslie. Hardy had mistaken this innocent 15-year-old girl for the girl who had rejected him. Police at the time were mystified by Leslie's disappearance. She had no problems at home. There was nothing to suggest that uh, she was in any way mentally disturbed or anything along those lines. It was just a nice young lady who disappeared off the face of the earth. 
Despite desperate pleas from Leslie's parents for information, inquiries hit a dead end. She was missing for months, and I know that the divisional police detectives dealt with it as a murder. She wasn't expected to be found alive, and the uh, extensive inquiries went on. I can remember the posters being in shop windows. The press covered it um, to no avail. But only Hardy knew Leslie's fate. He'd had his first taste of murder, and he seemed to relish it. He buried Leslie's body in a shallow grave in a nearby clay pit, and then, over the next few months, began a ghastly ritual. Well, essentially, he returns to the body after the murder. He decapitates uh, the body, mutilates the body. Contrary to the people who examined at the time, it's not my sense that he got sexual pleasure out of this. I think he was destroying evidence. He pulled his victim apart, limb by limb. Trevor Hardy had descended into new depths of sadism and depravity. Decomposition is physically unpleasant. The body feels damaged, it smells appalling. It's something that as a pathologist we have to deal with, but to choose to go back to a body like that and immerse yourself in that smell and that feel and then further mutilate it is such a perverse decision as to show something about the mind of the person who does it. But the degradation didn't stop there. By now, Hardy had found new love with a woman 10 years older than him, Sheila Farrow. He showered her with trophies he took from his victim's decomposed corpse. Trevor Hardy took some of his victim's jewelry and gave it to his girlfriend. And this is a behavior that we quite often see in serial killers because this is something that is going to be reminding them of their crimes. He hasn't just killed this young woman, he owns her, he possesses her, he can do with her what he wants. Now that Hardy had enjoyed his first kill, he wanted more. And the opportunity would come seven months later. On July 20th, 1975, 18-year-old Wanda Scala was making the short walk back to her house in Mauston after finishing her evening shift as a bartender in the local Lightbound Hotel. Hardy snuck up on her in a surprise attack, barely a mile from Wanda's home. But this time, his method was different from his first victim. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansell and former Manchester detective Ian Kirkpatrick described the attack. This time it wasn't a knife. This time, Hardy hit her. I suspect from behind, with a brick. There was somebody who uh, took pleasure in inflicting that kind of injury. Totally unnecessary, really. Hardy said that it was a robbery. But no, that was more than a robbery. It was um, a horrendous, brutal attack on a young female. After strangling Wanda, Hardy subjected his victim to even more sick and twisted violence. He began to mutilate her body. In particular, he bit off her right nipple before he dragged her onto a building site. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton explains why Hardy may have shown such an unusual manner of aggression. Biting is often another act of cruelty. It's not related to the death. 
I think it suggests a degree of rage. It's clearly orientated towards the sexual aspects of the body. And to actually bite someone's nipple off, the amount of force you have to put on your teeth is incredible. This is a huge amount of violence for violence sake. Hardy had now joined the ranks of other sadistic killers throughout history, including Neville Heath, a 1940s murderer he'd read about while in prison. He seemed to draw inspiration from him, as he too had bitten off the nipples of his victims. Early the next morning, police found Wanda's body half-buried on a building site. They were confused by the vile nature of her injuries. We knew that she had had her right nipple bitten off, which was a most certainly an unusual form of injury for any kind of murder. He hadn't just done that. He hadn't just hit her once with a brick and strangled her, because he'd also then proceeded to absolutely to destroy her face, to crush it so that her jaw was dropping off, that she was utterly destroyed. Police were sure this was the work of a monster. Not only had she been sexually assaulted, the frenzied blows to Wanda's head had shattered her skull. Even experienced murder detectives were shocked by the abominable nature of her injuries. Horrific head injuries wasn't good on Wanda Scarlet. She was, um, her private parts had been kicked. Um, she had horrendous injuries. Um, I've seen photographs just beyond belief, really. The community was aghast by Wanda's ferocious death. Many young women lived in fear. In the days that followed, police ran appeals in the press for information to help catch the killer. Details of the crime scene were reported in newspapers. Wanda's purse was taken. Police also revealed that one of her shoes was missing, believed stolen by her murderer. Hardy began to enjoy his newfound status as a killer and decided to get involved in the investigation in his own way. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley examines what Hardy could have been thinking at the time. Hardy actually takes one of Wanda Scala's shoes back to the crime scene. Now, he's, he's having fun here. He's playing with the police. And you often find this with individuals who have psychopathic traits and behaviors. They like messing with people. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber believes Hardy was toying with the police just because he could. This is play. This is taunting the police. This is, this is saying to the police, I'm in control of this situation. Uh, you'll get and see what I choose that you'll see. Bizarre. As Wanda's murder became the talk of the town, her killer found it hard to keep his sick secret to himself. At this point, Hardy and his brother, Colin, go for a drink together, shortly after the body's been discovered. And there's a lot of, it's, a, it's big news in Manchester, a lot of people talking about it in the pub. Few drinks are had, and Hardy makes the mistake of saying to his brother, Colin, well, I did it. I'm more vanity, you know, as if, well, I'm, I, I can do what I like. I'm, I can get away with it, no trouble. As, as calmly as telling him he had a bunion on his foot, he says, he killed this woman. Now, Colin is clearly taken aback by this. Appalled by his wild brother's confession, Colin made some excuses and walked home. Trevor made sure to walk with him. 
I don't think this was so much a confession. It was more of a boast. He was saying, hey, look at me. Look what I can do. And uh, I think he, he, he got a little bit beyond himself. He went a little bit too far in his showing off and realizes, wow, my brother knows about this, so I need to do some damage limitation here. When they arrived at Colin's door, Hardy decided there is nothing left to do but take immediate and extreme action. He absolutely batters his brother Colin in the wake of the confession. He batters him relentlessly and then leaves him prostrate on the floor, goes out for two minutes, comes back and tells his girlfriend to cook him baked beans. After calmly eating his beans, Trevor Hardy finally left. In shock, Colin's girlfriend tended to his injuries. The next morning, Colin went straight to the police. He reported the assault and reported that his brother had confessed. That should have triggered, given the gravity of the crimes that he committed, an investigation that most certainly would have stopped him. Following the violent assault on his brother and the reported confession, Trevor Hardy was arrested. Now safely behind bars, Colin was certain his monster brother could do no more harm. But Trevor had some plans in mind to stay ahead of the police. Forensics had taken a swab of the killer's saliva on Wanda's body. This was found near the right nipple, which had been savagely bitten off. Hardy was ordered to provide a sample of his saliva for comparison. He went to extreme lengths to eliminate himself from becoming prime suspect. It is rumored that whilst waiting to give the sample of saliva, he ate half a raw onion, which he had been told brought down the enzymes in the saliva to prevent it being traced. Despite this attempt to foil scientists, it was later proven Hardy's saliva sample did indeed match the killer's blood group. But Hardy had another trick up his sleeve to throw the police off his scent. What Hardy does next is pretty shocking. He's well aware that there is going to be some evidence in this case. He's bitten off the, the nipple of his victim, and there is a bite mark on her breast, which the police are able to match up if they have a forensic odontologist involved. With plans in place for police to take a dental impression of Hardy's teeth, the killer managed to get a nail file smuggled into his cell. He began to file his teeth down in order to change his bite imprint. To actually file your own teeth is both painful and in many ways incredibly foolish. It's simply making your mouth more noticeable. It's making the fact that your teeth are abnormal a characteristic. After taking an imprint of Hardy's teeth, experts couldn't make a conclusive match when comparing Hardy's dental impression and the victim's bite mark. Police believed they did not have enough evidence for a murder charge. Once again, Hardy evaded justice. The only charges he faced now were for the assault on his brother, Colin. Trevor went to court and was given suspended prison sentence. Albeit at that stage, the saliva test had proved that his blood group was the same as the one on Wanda Scala. The fact that when interviewed regarding the Scala murder, Trevor had said he'd been at home and his girlfriend, Sheila Farrah, corroborated the story and gave him a complete alibi. 
So now Hardy has an alibi, and all you really have is Colin's confession, or reported confession, that Hardy made quotes while he was drunk. Well, what makes this an especially sad story is the police essentially took his confession as insufficient. To Colin's utter horror, Hardy was released from custody, and the Beast of Manchester was once again free to roam the streets. Five months after battering his younger brother, Trevor's penchant for violence would once again rear its ugly head. On March 5th, 1976, Hardy accosted a 21-year-old woman in the restroom of a bar. He tried his hand with her. He put his hand between her legs. She resisted, and then he put his arms around her throat and began to throttle her. He grabs her around the throat so viciously that she bites part of her tongue off. But he's clearly intent on killing her. But he's disturbed and runs off, flees. Police got an accurate description of the attacker from patrons in the bar, and wanted posters were circulated. Although they were just trying to establish an identity, it seemed the walls were closing in on Hardy. But not in time for 17-year-old Sharon Mossoff. On March 9th, just four days after the assault in the bar, Mossoff was walking home after an office party. She'd asked her mum and dad, which night bus should I get from Manchester to the nearby? They said, well, you get the 98. And she gets off the 98 and encounters Hardy. She's walking past her workplace, Marlborough Mill, when she notices Hardy trying to break in, and he has a, a screwdriver on him. And he turns around and attacks Sharon with this screwdriver. After stabbing 17-year-old Sharon, Hardy then strangled her with her own tights. It is it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely tragic. An entirely innocent young woman walking home from a works party comes across a monster in Manchester who kills her, takes her clothes, and then dumps her in the Rochdale Canal. It's brutal. Again, he bites off a nipple. It's, it seems to be done on impulse. It's hard to believe that anyone would perpetrate a crime like this who doesn't, at their core, hate women. There, there are just too many women victims to, co to conclude anything else. But what we don't know is we don't know why he would hate women. Hardy raced home from the murder scene to his lover, Sheila Farrow, and persuaded her to cover for him once again. He then went home to his girlfriend, and it is said that his clothing was wet and that she actually dried them by ironing the jeans. Subsequently, when, we, when the iron was examined, there was algae from the, similar to that in the canal, found on the iron. I think he has somebody who is quite dependent upon him. He has somebody whose identity he's probably chipped away at until she feels absolutely worthless. Um, so, so he's able to, to manipulate her in this way because she's useful to him. Concerned another bite mark could be used in evidence against him, Hardy went back to Rochdale Canal a second time. He dove into its icy waters, then scratched over Sharon's bite mark 64 times using a rivet from his jacket, trying to obliterate all proof of his guilt. So here's an offender that is learning, um, that, that's learning the things that he needs to do to cover up after his crimes. And he's not abhorred, he's not disgusted by the mutilation of a dead body. This is a very, very dangerous man. 
Hardy then went on the run and tried to keep a low profile. When Sharon's body was found the next morning by a passerby, police opened a murder inquiry. Sharon was found in the canal, completely naked, but a ligature around her neck of her own tights. Her clothing had been placed in her top coat and folded and thrown into the canal. The water was at a freezing point. The body was frozen, or at least extremely cold, and had to be recovered by the diving team. So I think he must have been rather chilled by the time he's dived in there to uh, mutilate the wounds he's caused to Sharon's breast. Sharon's funeral was held on April 14, 1976. Detectives investigating her murder had begun to make links between her death and Hardy's other victims. The discovery that this victim had her nipple bitten off just like the previous killing meant Hardy was becoming a prime suspect. To add to that, he'd also been identified as the man wanted in connection with the violent sexual assault in the bar. Well now, Manchester police have a much clearer idea of what's going on. Now this puts Hardy firmly in the frame for the murder and Hardy disappears. He takes off, realizing that this is gonna be the police's view. With Hardy at large, police made frantic attempts to track him down, but he had vanished. Then, weeks later, there was a breakthrough in the hunt for Hardy. Detectives had a tip-off that his girlfriend, Sheila Farrow, was signing on for welfare benefits at a job center near Hardy's home. By tracing his lover, police hoped she'd lead them to the killer. Sheila Farrow signed on at the social of Failsworth. I think it was a Thursday. After we learned it, it was actually the following day she was signed on. So a rather rushed surveillance operation was put together. And we found and traced Sheila at the place. Hoping to trail her to Hardy, police kept a close watch on Sheila and tracked her every move. We then followed her. By hook or by crook, we followed to Stockport, and she went into a house on Wellington Road. Believing they'd finally found his hiding place, it was now or never for Ian Kirkpatrick and his team of detectives. Trevor Hardy had ruthlessly killed three young women and was wanted for the violent attack on another. Police had to make their move and fast before the Beast of Manchester went AWOL again. With no time to lose, police entered the building. And then, the woman who'd been protecting him surprisingly helped the police. Sheila Farrell is in, and when questioned, have you uh, seen Trevor? She's saying, no, he's not here. But she was, in fact, pointing to the hole in the roof, basically, the uh, loft. And she kept saying, no, he's not here, but pointing upwards at the loft. And uh, we went up, and the loft was opened, and there was Trevor. As police blocked the attic, he had nowhere left to run. Trevor Hardy was within their grasp. That is probably the highlight of my career, was we looked up the trap door, and somebody shouted, come, come down, Trevor. And he said, I'll come down if you don't hit me. For somebody who was so violent towards females, beyond belief. With Hardy safely back in jail, Farrow was more than willing to tell all. Hardy's story begins to unravel when Sheila Farrow tells the police that actually he wasn't in bed with her when Wanda was killed. 
nor could she give him an alibi for the night that Sharon Mossoff was murdered, the girl that's just been killed. So effectively, Hardy, now, he's clearly looking at a very long period of imprisonment. Trevor Hardy was charged for the murders of Wanda Scala and Sharon Mossoff, though he denied any involvement. Then in August 1976, while awaiting trial in Strangeways Prison, he dropped a bombshell. He confessed to the murders. And that wasn't all. Hardy had another surprise up his sleeve. He also admitted to murdering another girl two years earlier. 15-year-old Janet Leslie Stewart had been an unsolved missing person case that police had never been able to crack. He told the officers where she was buried, which resulted in the skeleton, or what was left of the skeleton, being found. And Leslie's body, of course, is in parts. A head in the lake, feet one place, feet another, hands another. Astonished, the police realise that they really do have a beast on their hands, which leads the local paper to dub him the Beast of Manchester. Detectives were puzzled at Hardy's additional murder confession. He's already got two murder charges that he's facing. Why add a third one? Well, to be perfectly honest, he's getting bored. Um, he's been inside prison for, for some time now. He's missing having control, having power over people. He's missing pulling people's strings. And he wants a bit of excitement in his life. And it, it really is as simple as that. Trevor Hardy ultimately faced justice on April 20th, 1977 at Manchester Crown Court. In a packed courtroom filled with victims' families, police, and the press, he was accused of three charges of murder for the killings of Janet Leslie Stewart, Wanda Scala, and Sharon Mossoff. Although he previously confessed, a manipulative Trevor Hardy took another opportunity to taunt the authorities. Trevor Hardy pleads not guilty. And this is because he wants to have people running around. He wants to see people inconvenienced. He wants to be the puppet master pulling everybody's strings. Five days into his long-awaited trial, Hardy had more surprises in store. He decided to change his plea. He was pleading guilty to manslaughter on the grounds that he was insane. They didn't accept that. He then sacked his counsel and said he would do his own defence. A so-called friend of the court was appointed to advise Hardy on the finer points of the law. There are a few cases of serial murder where the defendant has sacked their legal team and decided to defend themselves, and I think this, this shows the, the utter arrogance of, of these individuals, that, that actually, my legal team is not good enough for me, move over everybody and let me get on with this. It's commonly said that those who represent themselves have a fool for a client, and that is very true in the case of Trevor Hardy. Despite his pleas of insanity, the evidence from three different psychiatrists failed to back it up. They concluded that even though he had psychopathic tendencies, Trevor Hardy was just plain evil. This was a case that I think many people struggled to make sense of, because if you look at some of his offending behavior, biting off the nipples of his victims, revisiting their, their dead bodies, surely people thought at the time this could only be the work of a madman, but he wasn't mad. With his insanity pleas rejected, Trevor Hardy was out of options. On May 2nd, 1977, 
After 70 minutes of deliberation, the jury reached a verdict at Manchester Crown Court. They found him guilty on all three counts of murder. He was given three life sentences and five years for the attack on the young woman in the bar. For the relatives of victims, such as Leslie Stewart's mother, Margaret, it was some relief for the grief Hardy had caused them. Mr. Justice Caulfield told Hardy, this area is a happy place, but it will be a happier place without you. I think there was a sense of relief, definitely around Failsworth, Newneath, and uh, Boston areas. I am sure a lot of the population suspected Trevor. He was notorious, violent. Despite the atrocities of his crimes, Hardy became known as the forgotten serial killer. He was overshadowed by the likes of Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, who grabbed the media spotlight around the same time. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber explains why the Beast of Manchester isn't as well known as other killers. Part of the reason why Trevor's case is not more memorable to a lot of people is because the number of actual murder victims compared to other serial killers is relatively small. In the statistics book, he doesn't look as evil as he really was. But the barbaric nature of his killings still deemed him wicked in the eyes of the authorities. When Hardy tried to appeal his sentence after 30 years behind bars, the judges ruled there could only be one sentence, a whole life term. That was exactly what it was to prove, because in September 2012, Hardy had a heart attack in prison in Wakefield and died two days later. He was 67. For the last 15 years of his life in prison, he did not receive one single visitor. Everyone had realized just what a beast he was. His brother, his former girlfriend, and certainly everyone else. After becoming one of Britain's longest serving prisoners in history, no one mourned the death of the Beast of Manchester. In fact, some of the local community and victims' families even celebrated his passing. I think he shattered that innocence of the early 1970s. These were the years where, where women did feel safe out on the streets. Stranger danger really wasn't a thing, and I think this was the beginning of, of that starting to crumble apart. He preyed on the young, he preyed on those who couldn't fight back very easily, and his acts were calculated. He deliberately mutilated bodies after death for his own gratification. There's something about his eyes. I would say um, he was definitely different, definitely evil-looking. To pluck a young girl off the street who he didn't know, to kill her, bury her, say it was a mistake, and then dismember her body, that is just one evil person. Trevor Hardy savagely killed and mutilated three young women with their whole lives ahead of them. And those who knew him suspected there could be more. He rained terror upon the streets of Manchester, attacking anyone who crossed his path, including a girl of just 15 who he barbarously dismembered. His death was a relief to the community.
What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. The series is produced by Audio Boom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, Karen Bevan, Alexandra Jueno, and Neil Fern. Production for Woodcut provided by Andy Papadopoulos, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beal, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, we'd love it if you left us a review. Thanks. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer, Spokane, Washington, August 1st, 1998. On a notorious downtown strip known as The Track, a 46-year-old man picks up a sex worker. The woman doesn't know it yet, but the man at the wheel is a serial killer. He pretended to be exactly what he wasn't. The all-American hero, family man, was actually a sex addict who killed prostitutes for pleasure. After having sex with her, the killer pulled out his 25 caliber handgun and shot the woman in the head. Miraculously, she survives and is the only victim of this killer, Robert Lee Yates Jr., to do so.